Okay, we're in Deuteronomy 9. I'm going to read our passages, uh, verses 12 through 29, so basically the second half of Deuteronomy chapter 9. I'm going to read, starting in verse 12, and then I'm going to stop in verse 24. We're going to cover that section first, and then we're going to talk about the last section a little bit later. So starting in Deuteronomy 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 12, it says, The Lord said to me, Arise, go down from here quickly, for your people whom you have brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten image for themselves. The Lord spoke further to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I saw that you had indeed sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands, and smash them before your eyes. I fell down before the Lord, as at the first, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him, so I also prayed for Aaron at the same time. I took your sinful things, the calf which you had made, and I burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was a fine, as fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook that came down from the mountain. Verse 22, again, at Tibera and at Massa and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. When the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You neither believed him nor listened to his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. Wow. <laughs> that, that, that's just an amazing point of Scripture. And we're going to see why in a little bit. This... This is pretty intense, right? I mean, Moses' words and the Lord's words are, are pretty intense here. The wrath of the Lord is, is clear in these verses. Several years ago, I, I saw on, on television, this was a while ago, uh, some people, they were discussing the various ideas that people have for God and who He is. And, and one of the women that was on this show, she said that she just couldn't worship a jealous God. She couldn't worship a God who would, who would get so angry with false worship, is essentially what she was saying. She didn't like the idea of a jealous God. Genesis 127 says that God created man in his own image, but we tend to create God in our own image, right? I mean, we just, we tend to do that. And we've all done it at some point in our lives. 
We've all had this false idea of God at some point. And God is not okay with that. He's not, he's not okay with that. And not only that, as we see in these, in these verses here, God detests false worship. He hates it. This is what we just read. That's the, the golden calf incident from Exodus 22, right? Let's review the golden calf incident. In, in verses 9 through 11, which was uh, what Dave Rondeau covered last week, Moses, right, he's on Mount Sinai. He's getting the two tablets with the Ten Commandments. And the Israelites were waiting for him at the bottom of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And then in the, in the beginning of today's passage, verses 12 through 17, the Israelites, in their impatience, waiting for Moses to come back down from the mountain, they begin to engage in idolatry, false worship, right? They, they, uh, Aaron collects all the jewelry and the gold from all the people, and he, he melts it down and he creates a golden calf. And when Moses sees this, his reaction gives us a good picture of the wrath of God towards false worship. So there's a few things that I want us to look at in this golden calf incident. Let's look at verse 14. God says, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And then he tells Moses, and I will make you a nation mightier and greater than they. See what he's doing here? God is offering Moses a second chance with a new nation. A new nation that's greater, greater and mightier than this one. He's offering them, he's offering Moses a way out of a very serious problem. And a way out that would give him some better and more obedient people. But Moses wouldn't take it. He did not take up that offer. He would not give up on the Israelites. You know, there's many ways in which Moses is a precursor to Jesus Christ, right? Moses brought the law, and Jesus fulfills it. Moses delivers the Jews from slavery in Egypt. Jesus delivers his sheep from slavery to sin. And one of the ways that Moses is a precursor to Jesus is that Moses was a good shepherd. He was a good shepherd who would neither leave nor forsake his sheep. Moses would not forsake the rebellious people that God had given him to lead, just like Jesus will never leave nor forsake us, as it says in Hebrews 13.5. In John chapter 10... Verses 11 through 13, Jesus himself says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is the hired hand and not the shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. And then when we skip down to verse 15, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And that was Moses. Moses 
laid down his life for the sheep. And that's what pastors do, right? Pastors are people who give their lives for their sheep. Now, in some countries, that means that they literally give their lives, right? They die sometimes for the sheep. And any pastor who's worthy of being called a pastor would be willing to die for the sheep. And we're fortunate here at the Rock Community Church to have pastors and elders who are willing to to lay down their lives, who are willing to die to themselves for the flock, for the Rock Community Church. I I usually stand in the back uh, during worship. And uh, one one morning, on a Sunday morning, I'm I'm back there worshiping, and uh, it it happened to be a weekend that Pastor Dave was preaching. And so he's back there with me. And all of a sudden, he just puts his arm around me and he says, don't you just love these people? And I just looked at him and I said, yeah. And, he, and I don't know if you remember this, Dave, but he said, I would do anything for them. And I said, me too. Now, I know he didn't mean he would do anything. He's not going to sin for you guys, but he would put you before himself. And I've seen him do that. We're very blessed at this church to have the pastors and elders we do. And Moses was that way. Moses would not abandon the people that God gave him to lead, the people that he loved so much. Let's look at verse 17. Moses says, I took hold of the two tablets and I threw them from my hands and smashed them before your eyes. So Moses sees this idol worship of the golden calf, and he destroys the tablets. You know, the tablets with the, with the Ten Commandments, the tablets were symbols of the covenant relationship between God and the Israelites. And so when Moses breaks the two tablets, it was symbolizing the breaking of that covenant relationship. That covenant relationship between God and his children was broken. And that's no small thing. That is no small thing. That's why God was so angry. That's why Moses was so angry. Look at verse 21. It says, I took your sinful thing, the calf which you had made, and I burned it with fire and crushed it grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust, and I threw its dust into the brook that came down from the mountain. Moses expresses God's wrath by burning the golden calf with fire. He burns it. God was angry. You know, we tend to focus on maybe one or two components of God's nature typically, right? Typically, most people just want to talk about God's love. And God certainly is love. It says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. He is. Or sometimes we think about His holiness, right? Like in Isaiah chapter 6, where the angels three times, they say that God is holy, holy, holy. They say it three times for emphasis. 
And there are several other components of God, uh, aspects of his, of his nature, His character. God is truth, right? God is good. He's infinite. He's eternal. God is, is joy. He's gracious. He's omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. All he's omni, omnipresent, or he, meaning He's everywhere. And He's omniscient, all-knowing. But God is also wrathful. He's wrathful against sin. He does extend uh, what we call common grace, right, even to the non-believers, right? We all have common grace. We have air to breathe. We, we have food. We have clothes. And we have families. We have love. And God extends that common grace to everybody, but He, he hates sin. And he will one day judge us all. He will judge us all. And only those who are in Christ, who have repented and put their faith and trust in Jesus' work on the cross, will be saved from God's wrath. That's what the Bible teaches. And God's wrath was expressed by Moses when he burned up the golden calf. And you know, in in Exodus 32, where we first read of this incident... It says that after Moses burned the golden calf with fire and he grinds it into a powder and scatters, scatters it over the water, it says that he made the sons of Israel drink it. That's wrath. Idolatry is no joke, you guys. You know, the first commandment in the Ten Commandments is about idolatry. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Anything we put before God is an idol. It's idolatry. It doesn't necessarily, necessarily have to be religious in nature, although it sometimes is, but it doesn't have to be. It could be money. It could be possessions, comfort, right? Family. I see people put family in front of God. It could be our children. Here's something I sometimes struggle with. It could be our spouse. Our spouse can be an idol. Idolatry. Serious stuff. So Moses burns the golden calf with fire. And someone says, well, wouldn't it have been better to just, you know, melt it down and and sell the gold or maybe even make something legitimate out of it? Well, no. (laughs) This is an indication of God's holiness. This speaks to God's desire for pure worship. In uh, the book of Joshua, you might remember when when God gave the Israelites victory over some of the cities that were in the promised land, and he instructed them to utterly destroy everything in those cities. Just everything was to be utterly destroyed, including the things of value, right? The, The gold, the silver, the animals. Because they were associated with the horrific idol worship of the people in those cities, the the horrible things, the child sacrifices and things like that that were going on in those cities. God wanted everything utterly destroyed. And so Moses burned the gold because it's necessary for us to renounce everything associated with the things that, that once held us in sinful bondage. You know, when God first saved me, one of the things that I was doing at the time was I was going out with my friends and drinking. 
I would just, I would do that. And, and after God saved me, every time I'd hang out with those same friends, we'd do the same thing. And so I realized I had to cut off those friends. Even though I, I, I loved those guys, and I still love those guys, and I miss them, but I had to cut those relationships off. Let's go to verse 22 and 23. In these, in these two verses, Moses mentions four places where the Israelites rebelled against God. He mentions Tibera, Massa, Kibroth, Atava, and Kadesh Barnea. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of what exactly went on, but um, in Tibera, uh, they were complaining about some of the adversity they were going through. In Massa, you might remember the last time I was up here a few weeks ago, uh, this is in Exodus 17. They weren't trusting the Lord for, for their, their uh, food and water. They were testing the Lord, as Moses put it. In Kibroth Hatava, they were complaining about their food, about the food that the Lord had given them. And in Kadesh Barnea, they refused to go into the land that God had promised them because they were afraid. They lacked faith. They were disobedient. And so in verse 24, Moses says to them, You have been, a rebelli- have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. That's harsh, but it's true. Suffice it to say that the Israelites were a handful for Moses. They were a handful, and they were provoking God to anger with their rebelliousness. But look what happens in the next section. This is why this Part, this portion of Scripture is so amazing to me. Let's look at verses 25 through 29. It says, So I fell down before the Lord the forty days and nights, which I did because the Lord had said He would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance whom you have redeemed through your greatness. Whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look at the stubbornness of this people or at their wickedness or their sin. Otherwise, the land which you brought us, from which you brought us, may say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people. Even your inheritance, whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Moses prays for the sheep. That's his reaction. He sees this idolatry. He, he, he exudes the wrath of uh, uh, the anger of God, and then he prays for the sheep. For 40 days and 40 nights, he says. I can't imagine praying for that long, but that's what he says. And and the length of the prayer illustrates the importance of prayer, the importance of persevering in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, remember that one? Pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6.18 With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. 
And with this in view, be on the alert, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now, these verses are not saying that we're to take some sort of monastic position in which we pray continuously, constantly, or repetitiously. Rather, they mean that we are to pray persistently, regularly. Prayer is important. Prayer is so important. Persevering in prayer. One commentary I read by Ajith Fernando. He says, often we think of solutions to problems, or I'm sorry, often when we think of solutions to problems, the importance of our actions is overrated, while the importance of pleading with God in prayer is underrated. I couldn't have said that better myself. Now, he's not saying, obviously, that our actions are not important or that our actions, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take action. But he's saying that prayer is so much more important. We need to be persistently praying, and we need to do it without ceasing. Jesus encouraged this type of persistent prayer in, in Luke 18. Let's turn to Luke 18. There's a parable that Jesus uh, gives us in Luke 18, starting in verse 1. So in Luke 18, verse 1, it says, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I don't think I can emphasize enough the importance of this truth in God's word. We must be a people that prays without ceasing, that prays continually, persistently. Because this is spiritual warfare we're dealing with, you guys. Spiritual warfare, right? In Ephesians 6.12, this is what the Apostle Paul said. He said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Spiritual warfare. So we are in a spiritual battle And so we need to pray. We need to be praying. You know, with with all this in mind, I want to share something with you guys. Something that's been going on in in my life over the last few months and even, to be honest, over the last 11 years. 
you know, on, on March, uh, well, most of you know my, my, my mother passed away this year. And it was on March 21st of this year that, uh, that dad had to take mom to the hospital because she had some back pain and shoulder pain. She had been dealing with cancer for over a year at this point. And when he took her to the ER that day, we did not know that she was never coming home. She passed away three weeks later on April 8th. And so my dad, you know, lately we've been talking a lot about things and, and memories. And, and I'll be honest with you guys, it's, it's, it's not getting easier right now. It's getting harder. It's getting harder. So uh, a few weeks ago on, on my day off, I usually take Mondays off after the weekend services. And I just had an overwhelming sense of, of sadness on this day. And I, uh, I just started driving around and thinking, and, and praying, and, and being sad, and I, I was just driving to different places around the area where I had memories of my mom, or things that we did, you know, I, I, I went to downtown Disney, my mom loved Disneyland, and just drove by different restaurants, and parks, and stores where, where we have memories, and as I drove around, I, I, I just remembered certain things, right, I, like the day that my mom took a day off work to take me to Disneyland for my birthday, or things like my, even my grandparents coming to town on Christmas Eve. They would come to, to spend the night at my house on Christmas Eve every year. When I was a teenager, my sport of choice was cycling, and so I used to train with my team all around the, the, the roads here in Orange County, and I, I was on some of these roads that I used to train on, and I, I was just thinking about those days, or I drove by the Richard Nixon Library, and I remembered how my dad, on the way to the barbershop, once told me, this is before the library was built, he said, you see that little shack in the middle of those weeds? Richard Nixon was born there. And I thought, that can't be. It's a little run-down shack. I actually didn't believe him. And then 10 years later, they built a library, and I figured he was probably telling me the truth. I remembered getting hit by a car in the Angel Stadium parking lot, and I was just thinking about going to various birthday parties and sleepovers as a kid, and, and my heart strangely just felt so thankful. Thankful for the times that I had with my mom and my dad and my wife and my, my family and my friends. Thankful for the difficult times. Thankful for the mercies of God. I had a couple other stops on this day. I... I stopped by mom and dad's old house here in Anaheim Hills, and I, I hiked up behind the house. They lived on a, on a hill, and there was a slope behind the house, and I, I hiked up. Because I, wanted to, I wanted to look at the backyard. Not much has changed in the backyard. I, I, it looked exactly the same to me, and I sat on this slope and where I could see the backyard on one side and a view of Orange County on the other, and just feeling very much alone, very very sad and praying for peace and comfort in this lonely time. And I, I was just feeling so thankful for God's mercy and grace on my life that he would save and love a sinner like me. Because of his grace, I have an eternal future with him. The last stop was I went to the cemetery where mom is buried. And, of course, that's where the, 
the dam broke and the waterworks started and my heart just cried out. You know, I, there was no one around, so I didn't have to hold anything back. And those tears were just overflowing with, thank you, thank you, thank you for a mom like that. Thank you for 44 years of a mom like that. Thank you that my little children got to spend a few short years with her and for the rest of their lives they will taste the intense love that she has for them. It was all mercy. It was all grace. Nobody in the world deserves a mom like that. And yet the Lord showed grace to me by giving her to me as a mother. I don't understand to this day why the Lord took her at age 68. I, I, I don't understand that. But I accept it. I bow before it. I regard it as grace and mercy that I had her for so long. And I'll find out later why the timing of her death. Now, all, all of this is happening in my heart. And on this particular day, I'm looking over my old backyard and I was feeling these things and, and looking over the house that I grew up in that's not my house anymore, and, and it just hit me. One day, I'm, I'm going to die, and my kids will have to go through what I'm going through right now, and, and their kids, if they have kids by then, their kids will lose their grandpa. And just the, the, the closure of it all, the, the sense of ending was very powerful in that moment. And I, had, I almost had this feeling of rebellion, like, Lord, is, is life just a series of endings? As you move through life, are, are chapters just closing and stories just ending so that there's less life to live and the memories are just piling up? Is that all there is? And as I reflected on that moment, I was reflecting on that moment as I was preparing for this message, and this is the question I ask, and I ask it to you now because we've all, we've all tasted these things. If, if you're old enough, you've all tasted endings to stories, chapters in your life, right? A 10-year chapter, a 20-year chapter, 50 years. You relive it, you remember it, and the question is, is this vast longing for things, that, that, things, that things not end? That things not be this way, this, this reflex of rebellion against the ending of good things, is that just an evolutionary chemical reaction in our brain? Or is that a testimony of God? Is that God saying, the reason that you feel this way is because you were made for something more? This is a testimony that the reason that these endings are so painful and so foreign to us is because you weren't made for endings. You were made for something lasting, something permanent, something that never will grow old. We were created with eternity in our hearts. Could it be that this is a testimony to that? Could it be that Ecclesiastes 3.11 is true, that God has sent, set eternity in our hearts. We were not made for endings. 
And so I want to close this message by, by sharing with you what some of you already know. My mom, for 25 years before she died, was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormon Church. Now, I, I've come to realize that a, a lot of people uh, believe that the Mormon Church is just another version of Christianity, but I want to tell you that, that that's not true. First of all, it's a works-based system. Uh, they, they don't believe in grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone for salvation, which Paul denounces in Galatians 1. Uh, but also, more than that, it's a different Jesus that they have. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. For one thing, we know Jesus to be eternal, right? He, he was not a created being, but they believe him to be a created being. Now, I, I love Mormons. My mother was a Mormon for a long time. I, a lot of her close friends are Mormon who I still know and love. I have, still have family members in the church. But when God first saved me about 11 years ago, and I began to study his word, and I, I started to realize that mom was in a golden calf situation. And so I tried to, to reason with her, right, convince her, uh, show her scripture, and we would sometimes debate. And one day she made it clear that I was barking up a dead tree. And so I stopped witnessing to her, and instead, I just prayed without ceasing, persistently, almost every day. And my kids, with the exception of the oldest one, my kids. For their entire lives, they prayed for her, for her salvation. I was taking a cue from Moses. I, I, right, He saw the false worship of the golden calf, and after his initial anger, he prayed for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, we prayed. And after about eight or nine years of praying, the phone call came, Mom has cancer again. She had, I say again, because about 20 years previously, she had beaten stage four breast cancer. Uh, and as things progressed, it became apparent that there was a good chance that she wasn't going to make it through this time. <clears throat> and so the Lord in his providence, uh, he put it on my heart to ask mom if she would like to go through the book of John with me. So I asked her and she said yes. And I chose John because it, it's the book that offers the most vivid picture of the person of Jesus Christ, right? Who he is, God incarnate, eternal, his nature, his characteristics. And so for the next year or so, we are going through the book of John and we, we read things about Jesus, like in chapter one, where it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word, I'm sorry, the word was with God and the word was God. Or in chapter 3, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or in chapter 5, where it says that Jesus was making himself equal with God. Or where it says, you search the, Jesus says, you search the scriptures, you search the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Or in John chapter 8, where he, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. These all tell of the real Jesus, the one true God, 
which is in sharp contrast to the Jesus that my mother knew. And around the time that we finished chapter 13 of the book of John, that's when mom went to the ER. And things were getting worse for her, and she was laying in the hospital bed, and I, I decided to open my Bible and, and continue our study of John. I mean, what else could I do? And before we studied, I, I asked her, I asked her, do you, do you see the difference between Mormon Jesus and biblical Jesus? She said, yes. Prior to that, she thought there was no difference. And so in the beginning of chapter 14, verse 6, John chapter 14, verse 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is biblical Jesus saying, no one comes to the Father but through me. It's not some other Jesus. It's not the Jesus. It's the Jesus of the Bible. It's, it's his blood on the cross that cleanses us from the sin that separates us from God. And when I read that to her, I saw, I saw something turn on. I saw a light turn on. I, I could tell there were a lot of emotions there, but she couldn't articulate them. And she wasn't really all there. She was in a lot of pain, but I, I could tell there was something going on. And so we talked, and I asked her if she wanted to repent and put her faith and trust in the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And she said, yes. God saved her. He saved her. Praise the Lord. And so we prayed, and I went home. It was late. Next morning, Dad calls and said that she's now in the ICU with a tube in her mouth. And she never spoke again. It wasn't my conversations that saved mom. It wasn't my clever words or my scriptural arguments that saved my mom. It was God. It was his word that changed her heart. And it was through our prayers as a family and through your prayers. I know so many of you were praying for her all those years. It was through those prayers that God worked, those persistent prayers, so that the world would know that it had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with me. It was all Him, and He would get the glory. And so now I know, without a doubt, I know what she's doing right now, and I know that she's doing what she was created to do. She's worshiping God in heaven. We were made to worship Him. And that's what she's doing right now. I'll never forget a sermon that Pastor John, who founded the Rock Community Church, he, before I was ever even saved, we were coming here for a few months before I got saved, and, and Pastor John was in Joshua 24, and Joshua 24, 15 says, Choose for yourselves who today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. So he's saying, you're going to serve something, so choose for yourselves who you're going to serve, whether it's the, the gods of your fathers or the gods of the Amorites. And for us, that could be money, it could be ourselves, it could be possessions, it could be pleasure. And then Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
We're all going to worship something. The Israelites were impatient. They needed something to worship. So they made a golden calf. But Moses didn't give up on them. He did not give up on them. He prayed for them. And God kept his promise. If you know anyone who is worshiping something else, whether it's a false religious system or or whether it's money or whether it's themselves or their own pleasures or their desires, don't give up on them. Love them. Pray for them. Pray, pray, pray. Pray without ceasing. And don't stop. Don't stop praying. James 5.16 says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. What a wonderful time to take communion. I'm going to invite the band up and, and Bruce Cook. Bruce is going to do a short devotional for us before we take communion. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you. I know some of you were praying for my mom all those years. And God answered the prayers, as he did with Moses. He answered the prayers. So if you know of anyone who needs those prayers, don't stop praying for them. And let the rest of us know so we can pray. In fact, our prayer team is going to be to my left after the service. And if you, want to, if you need prayer or if you want to tell them who you, you want them to pray for, let them know. They'll be to my left on the stage. I'm going to close in prayer now, and then we're going to take communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for...